So, so Michael, why is it important that the trauma patients get immobilized? So you don't further injure them. If Henry County Fire Department hadn't have done their job correctly, would you be as well off today as you are? Absolutely not. Because you would have created more damage to your lumbar spine and who knows. So, uh, and keep in mind guys, and again, follow your protocols because some places may allow you to clear, clear C-spine in the field. Um, they may allow you just to put a collar on them depending on, based on the Toronto study and you can take time and you can look up what the Toronto study says about immobilization and pressure sores caused by a backboard if you want to. At the end of the day, none of that really matters as long as you're following your agency's protocols and for right now you have two types of patients, right? Medical and trauma and what do we do for trauma patients? Listen to me, it's precautionary measures a lot of times. And if somebody says, yeah, I just want to go to the hospital just as a precaution, then you don't immobilize them. What are you not doing? You're not taking precautions, right? Raise your hand if you have x-ray vision. None of us do. Take the precautions. You can always explain why you did something, right? Explaining why you did nothing gets tricky and y'all have heard that ad nauseum at this point. I know, but get used to it. Mac, I thought you fixed it. Fixed your scan problem, sir. Oh, okay, this is a different one? Yes, sir. I have multiple problems. All right, I'll assess them at a later time. <laughs> Do what? I'll assess them at a later time. Okay. Head and spine injuries. We're going to talk about that, that, and some of that, right? And then here we go. Nervous system is a complex network of nerve cells that enables all parts of the body to function. That is, as long as they're intact, right? Um, the nervous system, is it, is it highly understood? No, it's one of the least understood, right? Uh, we're talking about the brain, the spinal cord. Brain and spinal cord makes up what part of the nervous system? Central, Central nervous system. And it's encapsulated in what? The meninges. There's three layers of those, right? And then you have the peripheral nervous system, which is everything else. The sensory nerves, the motor nerves. And if your spinal cord gets damaged, all of those sensory and motor nerves below the injury now no longer work, right? because they can't, uh, well, they just no longer work. And I don't wanna to get too far ahead of our anatomy and physiology review that I know is coming, so. Uh, just some, some terms related to head trauma. Uh, head trauma is both head injuries and traumatic brain injuries. Head injuries, tra traumatic injury to the head that may result in injury to the scalp, head or skull, TBI, that's when they're talking about the traumatic brain injuries. And SCI, spinal cord injuries. One of the most devastating injuries. What type of shock is gonna result from spinal cord injuries? Neurologic. Neurologic shock, neurogenic shock, or spinal shock is called too. 
And I remember I went on and on and on to tell you shock patients are shock patients and they'll present the same, but then I threw a caveat in there and I said, would spinal shock or, or neurogenic shock, will they be tachycardic? What will the skin be like? Normal shock patients, the skin's what? Pale, cool, diaphoretic. Will the neurogenic shock patient be pale, cool, and diaphoretic? Skin's going to be warm and dry, right? Well, they won't be tachycardic, will they? No. And what is another condition that goes hand in hand with neurogenic shock or spinal shock that we talked about? Don't say it. You? Hypothermia. Yeah. So, um, anyhow, and I know that's a little bit of a review, and some of y'all are looking at me like I'm speaking Greek up here, so uh, you might want to review that a little bit. The nervous system is divided into the central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord. And you have the peripheral nervous system. Uh, voluntary activities, uh, which uh, actions that you consciously control, what part of the nervous system controls those, you think? What part controls the involuntary activities, the things that you can't control? Autonomic nervous system. Remember, because we said automatic, autonomic kind of sounds similar, right? Right, and again, the central nervous system is encapsulated in the meninges, the three layers, the three meningeal layers. Who can tell me the th names of the three layers? What are they? The pia mater, dura mater, and the arachnoid. And what's the name of that space underneath the arachnoid? Subarachnoid space. And what is produced and reabsorbed in the human body in the subarachnoid space? Cerebrospinal fluid. And remember I told you that there's another name for the subarachnoid space. And that when, when you see it on your registry test, you'll think they're pulling a trick on you because you'll think they're talking about the heart. The ventricles of the brain. Ventricles of the brain. All right? Don't let them trick you. You have the scalp, the skull, obviously the cranium. We talked about this a little bit last class, but what are the seven bones of the cranial vault that I told you you needed to remember? What's the one in the front called? Frontal. The one in the back? Occipital. And it's got a big hole in it called what? Framing magnum. The two right here at your temples? Temporal. And then two up here? And what's the, the cavity of the uh, cribriform plate is the base where the brain actually sets on. Cheekbones are zygomas. The upper jaw is what? Lower jaw? Lower jaw. And the eye sockets are called what? Orbits? No. As to what? It is the it is the orbits. My bad. 
I'm thinking I was like the globe, the eyeballs called the globe sometimes too, and I had a senior moment. Because if it's anything around the eye sockets, it's uh, orbital, right? Whatever. See, we talked about all that, didn't we? The face has 14 bones. I don't think you have to know all of those, but what are the major ones in the face that we've kind of talked about some of them already? Cheekbones are the what? Zygomas or zygomatic bones. Mandible, maxilla. Where's the lacrimal bone at? Yeah. Um, you've got ethmoid bones and sphenoid bones and all that stuff too in there. Thing to know about the eye socket is it's made up of parts of several other bones, right? The frontal bone is made up of the cranium. Obviously the frontal bone is the top part of the orbits. And what's on the side then? The temporal, right? And then the zygomas at the bottom. Thirty-three vertebrae, right? How many cervical vertebrae do you have? Seven. Seven. C1, C2, C3, C4, C5, C6, C7. Which, what makes up the atlas axis joint? C1 and C2. What does C1 allow you to do? C2 lets you do what? How many thoracic vertebrae do you have? T1, T2, T3, so on and so forth, right? Lumbar? Sacral? And then what's the last one? Coxygeal or coxic? Four. How many are fused? The last nine. So which lumbar vertebrae did you break, Michael? L5. L5. Right down at the bottom, right? Yep, that's the one. Bro. Shattered. Shattered. <laughs> uh, and where do injuries occur in the human body? Where they can't absorb the energy, right? The parts of the body that can't absorb the energy. And what part of the vertebral column, what two parts are most frequently injured? Lumbar and cervical because it's not straight. It's got whoopties, right? <laughs> and and it turns out energy can't follow a whoopty. It will be whoopty. <laughs> yeah. How long is the spinal cord on average? That's what broke on you, wasn't it? Your transverse processes. All of them. That's, you know, whenever they're talking about your back and, you know, they're making analogies, firecrackers and things like that, it's not what you want to hear. Uh, all right. Intervertebral discs separating cushion each vertebrae. That's those little cushioning pads in between them. Um, peripheral nerve injury, nerve injury at the peripheral level. 
All right. Again, the central nervous system is your brain, the left and right hemispheres. What, what part of the brain is divided into left and right hemispheres? The cerebrum. Okay. And then cerebellum is a little outpocketing of brain posterior to the brain stem. And what's something that the cerebrum, or, 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 or excuse me, the cerebellum is sometimes referred to as? Athlete's brain, why? Muscle coordinate, muscular coordination, things of that nature are controlled there. What are the three parts of the brain stem? Pons, midbrain, and the medulla. Yep. Uh, not sure we talked about this a whole lot the first time we talked about the brain and everything, but the limbic system. Y'all remember having a discussion about the limbic system and higher learning? I, your book's probably not even going to say a whole bunch about it, but get on your phone or something, and I want somebody to tell me what the limbic system, L-I-M-B-I-C, what is the limbic system control? Emotions and memory. Okay. That's all it says? It regulates autonomic Instincts, emotions, autonomic. The frontal lobe does what? I'm talking about the brain. What does the frontal lobe control? Personality, higher learning, things of that nature. So when you have those flash reactions, like if somebody walks in and you just kind of get startled all of a sudden, or if they say something or do something and then you just get really mad really quick, y'all ever done that? Happens to me on a regular basis. That's called, uh, that's your limbic system kicking in. And that's why sometimes they'll say breathe or count to 10 if you're real upset about something because it takes that extra time for the frontal lobe to kick in and override that limbic system so you just don't choke somebody to sleep. You know what I mean? What age does your frontal lobe Probably, it's not 18, I can tell you that, buddy. And I'm not even telling a joke. I want to say it's in mid-20s or something like that. And that's why kids are not just little adults. Don't listen to that crap, because it ain't true. <laughs> the frontal lobe's not developed. All right, anyhow, it's not the, not the point. <laughs> hey, uh, what's this little area just superior to the, uh, the, the midbrain? Diencephalon, and what's in there? And the hypothalamus in conjunction with the skin helps you regulate what? Core body temperature. There you go. Uh, does the brain run with oxygen reserves? No. So it has to have a constant supply of oxygen, right? Once they start becoming hypoxic, that's when you see altered levels of consciousness. Because it, 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 it kind of has to have it. All right. What, uh, good Lord, what's that right there say? It's a limbic system. The amygdala is part of your limbic system. So when you get that 
flash rage, you know, just somebody says something and it pushes your button and like you want to choke them out, which you can't do, it's illegal. Um, that's called amygdala hijack, just so you know. That's not in your book and you probably don't need to know it. But, but what page is this picture right here on? 1201, you need to know those things. What hemisphere of the brain, left or right, what hemisphere of the brain controls speech? It's right or left? left. left. Who said that? Who said left? Yeah. All right, we can go to Vegas together because it's the left. That fit fits shot. So if there's a stroke or some sort of injury to the left side of the brain, or there's an injury somewhere in the brain, you're not really sure where it is, but they can't speak, you know it's the left side because the left side controls speech. Does that make sense? You need to know that. Cerebellum controls body movements. Brainstem controls virtually all functions that are necessary for life. Breathing, blood pressure, things of that nature, okay? That's why if someone overdoses on a narcotic, which is a central nervous system depressant, what do they stop doing? The meninges, protective layers that surround and enfold the entire central nervous system. Uh, of course, you have the duramater. What's another name for the duramater? Hard mother. The hard mother. In the book, it's supposed to be hard. Hard, tough, I guess they're synonymous, huh? The arachnoid, why is that called the arachnoid again? Yeah, all those little bitty blood vessels resemble spider webs. And then, of course, there's cerebrospinal fluid produced and reabsorbed back into the subarachnoid space. And then you have the uh, pia mater, soft mother. The peripheral nervous system has 31 pairs of spinal nerves and 12 pairs of cranial nerves. 31 and 12. And what's that little plexus of nerves in the lower back called? Because I told you, you know, you could be calling somebody a horse's ass without them knowing it. Called a equina. There you go. Yep, 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 yep. And what does this say? Uh, I can't get it. What page is this on? 1203. You need to understand those uh, uh, lines where it says the brachial plexus, C1, uh, C5 to T1 controls upper, upper extremities. Spend some time on that. How many peripheral nerve pairs do you have? 31. How many cranial nerves? How many vertebrae? The somatic nervous system, I asked you earlier what part of the nervous system controls voluntary functions, and, and nobody told me, so I went on to involuntary. It's the somatic. The somatic nervous system regulates or controls voluntary activities. Uh, autonomic nervous system controls functions of many of the body's vital organs 
And let's see, the cranial nerves pass through openings in the skull and transmit sensations directly to or from the brain. And the peripheral nerves conduct sensory impulses from the skin and other organs to the spinal cord, but then it's also from the brain down to the motor, uh, motor functions, the skeletal muscles. And I know I'm going through this pretty quickly, and so if I need to slow down, let me know, but this is all chapter five. What's this picture demonstrating? Reflexes. Reflexes, right? And what it's telling you is normally if you feel something or you experience something in your environment, uh, the sensory nerves pick up those signals, send it to the spinal cord, right? And it goes up the ascending track or up one side of the spinal cord to the brain, then the brain processes that signal, then sends a signal back out down the descending track to the motor nerves telling you to react ever how's appropriate, right? But reflexes kick in when something's extremely hot, cold, sharp, whatever, basically the signal goes to the spinal cord, bypasses the brain, and just kicks right back out to, so the sensory nerves kicks over to the other side of the spinal cord and right back out to the motor nerves without even going to the brain. So it's reflexes. So why do you think it is when you go to the doctor, they take that little rubber, little thing that looks like a potato wedge, you know? That little hammer with a little rubber piece and they hit you right underneath your kneecap and Sensory and motor nerves often overshadow the role of the spinal cord. Sympathetic nervous system controlled by the brain's hypothalamus as well. And the parasympathetic nervous system, sympathetic speeds things up too, right? Speeds up body functions. Parasympathetic slows them down, conserving energy. So that will be part of slowing things down, right? And maintaining the organ function. Any questions about the review? And again, I know we kind of went through there pretty quickly. I think it's probably like a great idea if everybody went back and reread chapter five. That's your foundation, okay? So let's make sure we have a good working knowledge of that. <laughs> All right, let's get started back. Head injuries, closed head injuries, traumatic brain injuries. What's causing the problem? Now, obviously, they got struck or something happened, but what's producing the signs and symptoms that you will see them clinically present with? Huh? The pressure, the swelling inside of that cranial vault, right? It reaches a point, it can't spread out but so much, right? Because of those bones. So it swells in, pushes, exerts pressure, limits uh, uh, cerebral blood flow. It pushes on those 12 pair cranial nerves. That's why you start seeing unequal pupils and things of that nature, because of the pressure, the swelling. 
A traumatic insult to the head that may result in injury to soft tissue, bony structures, or the brain. That's a traumatic insult or head injury. Closed head injury results in uh, skull fractures, uh, focal brain injuries, diffuse brain injuries, and open head injuries. Obviously, duramater cranial contents are penetrated. Um, the bones, even though they may be broken, is still intact, it's still closed. But when you go to see in gray matter, things of that nature, obviously, that's an open head injury. Wow. Scalp lacerations, again, how, how vascular is the scalp? So it's gonna, so it's gonna bleed, it's gonna look a lot worse than it is sometimes, but you can, get into problems if you have enough facial lacerations, scalp lacerations, and plus when the blood gets matted up in the hair, does that make it look worse too? Sure. What do you call that? What's the medical term for raccoon's eye? That's battle signs. Bruising behind the ears. Bruising at the mastoid process. That's battle signs. That is periorbital ecchymosis. Or raccoon's eyes. And what, what's, what does this person have? Basilar skull fracture. There you go. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Someone could have a basilar skull fracture, and when you get there, odds are they're not going to look like that when you, when you get there, right? Because they haven't had time to bruise up yet. But if you see that clear fluid, cerebrospinal fluid coming from the, you know, you, you look at your mechanism of injury, right? Oh, you got hit in the head with a baseball bat. Okay. Then high index of suspicion, and you see cerebrospinal fluid coming from the ears and or the nose. What if there's just blood coming out of the ears or nose? How could you check that for CSF? The halo test. Take that four by four, fold it catty cornered where you have a triangle, right? And you just dip a corner of it in that blood and let it soak, some blood soak up on there and you can literally watch it and the cerebrospinal fluid will separate from the blood. So you, you'll have the bloody part, and then you'll have something that looks like a halo around the periphery of the blood where it'll just be wet. That's cerebrospinal fluid, okay? Types of skull fractures, linear skull fractures, non-displaced, it's cracked, right? So look in your book. Does linear skull fracture just not look like it's hit and then there's cracks in it, right? Depressed skull fractures, that kind of is what the name implies, right? You've got a section of the skull that's sunken in. And with that, bony fragments may be driven into the brain, which is no good, no bueno. And then basilar skull fractures that we've talked about a bunch, typically associated with high energy trauma. And open skull fractures are what they sound like. They're open, 
you could see gray matter, you can see uh, parts of the brain is exposed to the environment. Again, there's a linear, depressed, which one's that? Basilar, that cribriform plate is cracked, and then that's open. Listen, if it's open and you see brain, you don't have to guess anymore. That's an open skull fracture. What type of airway would be contraindicated with a basilar skull fracture? Nasopharyngeal airway. There you go. Um, you know, again, getting back to the swelling or the increased ICP, you know, if someone has a, a traumatic brain injury from a car wreck or whatever, and of course then everybody goes to the hospital to see them or whatever, and everybody wants to know, well, what's the, what's the prognosis? What do we think? The doctors always say, well, we have to wait for about 72 hours. They, they got to let the swelling go down before they can determine long-term, I guess, neurological deficits. Primary brain injury is that injury caused instantaneously from the impact to the head. Secondary brain injury results from the uh, sequel of the primary brain injury, basically from the swelling. What damage does the swelling do? What did we, did I tell you this, this was that has a name? Yeah, coup contra coup. Remember, with a vehicular accident, how many impacts are there? There's three, right? Car hits whatever, then the patient hits the steering wheel dash, whatever, and then the patient's organs hitting the front of their uh, cranium, hitting the inside of the thoracic cage, and the injuries occur in what, what impact? The third one, right, with the organs. Brain hits the inside of the cranium, then sloshes backwards and hits the occipital bone back here. So, coup contra coup. Does everybody understand that? Yeah. All right. What do we say Cushing's triad was? Or Cushing's reflex? Obviously, with triad, we're looking at three things, right? All right, and so it, let's hold up right there. You're right. Increased blood pressure. So we're going to say Cushing's. One is increased BP. But the systolic will rise faster than the diastolic in an attempt to, now that that swelling's going on in the brain, it's pushing on those vessels, right? So it has a harder time circulating oxygenated blood to the brain. So it, it, the body increases blood pressure, but the systolic rises faster than the diastolic, therefore causing uh, a widening pulse pressure. Remember I told you too, the blood pressure will tell you where they're bleeding, right? If the blood pressure is going up, 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 and up, maybe they've been beat from head to toe, but if that blood pressure keeps going up and you see that widening pulse pressure, where are they leaking? 
They're leaking in the brain. If the blood pressure is staying the same but then starts to drop eventually, where are they leaking? Really everywhere else, but primarily in the thoracic cage or the abdominal cavity. Does that make sense? All right, so increased BP with a widening pulse pressure. What's another one? Irregular respirations. And we said you might be looking at Biot's respirations, Shane Stokes respirations, or it could just be ataxic. And if something's ataxic, it means what? without any discernible pattern at all. It's just all over the place. Shane Stokes respirations, what are those? Does anybody remember how you can, what type of pattern they'll have? Yeah, it goes from slow and shallow to deeper, faster, deeper, faster, deeper, faster, then slower, shallower, slower, shallower, then you have a short little period of apnea where they're not breathing at all, then it repeats the cycle. Again, indic indicative of an increased ICP and uh, closed head injury. What's the third one? Decreased pulse. Bradycardia. Why might elderly patients take longer to demonstrate or to show Cushing's triad? Brain has begun to shrink and there's a little void in there, right? So the void or the empty space has to fill up with blood before pressure starts being exerted. That's right. All right, cerebral perfusion pressure, or CPP. That is simply put, the pressure of the blood flow through the brain, all right? So when that decreases, the body increases mean arterial pressure. That's just a real fancy way of saying when it detects that the pressure is reduced in the brain, it increases pressure in all of the arteries. And it goes without saying, if the brain continues, continues to swell, continues to swell, nothing's done about it. Um, and can you do anything about ICP? Not really. You can help them out. You can hyperventilate the patient up to 20 times a minute. But as far as registry is concerned, there's no reason to ventilate anybody ever more than 20 times a minute because you get to release in free radicals and you cause vasoconstriction and you're just very counterintuitive to what you're trying to do in the first place, right? So, but if it continues to swell, which has to be fixed in, in the hospital, you're still in that cranial vault, what's eventually gonna happen? It, is there a hole in that cranial vault anywhere? The foramen magnum. The brain is gonna start pushing through that hole. Yeah, it's better than normal when that happens. Herniation, that's what they're talking about. It's pushing through that hole. And it's just, so it's really starting to build up pressure on the, on the uh, spinal uh, brain stem, right? 
they're they're definitely circling the drain when that happens. You should always monitor for signs and symptoms of increased ICP. And then you have two different types of posturing. You have decorticate posturing and decerebate posturing. Decorticate, the arms are flexed and kind of turned in like that, kind of toward the core, if you will. Decerebate, they're extended and laterally rotated, the hands, just like the pictures. Decorticate posturing, flexion of the arms and extension of the legs. When both of them, they look like they're pushing a gas pedal, okay? Decorticate, decerebate. Which one's bad? Yeah, I don't want neither one of them. When you see that, you'll know instantly what it is. And it's called a bad day. Cerebral contusions, that's a bruise on the brain. And an epidural hematoma is accumulation of blood between the skull and the dura mater. And if you have an epidural hematoma, which artery is probably insulted? If it's a epidural hematoma, it's typically the middle meningeal artery. Y'all remember me talking about that in chapter five? The middle meningeal artery. Epidural hematoma, subdural hematoma, which one's going to produce signs and symptoms the fastest? Had a 50-50 shot. Can't take y'all nowhere. The middle meningeal artery is the epidural, right? Artery's going to leak blood faster than a vein, right? So it's probably going to be the epidural hematoma. On top of the dura mater, subdural is below the dura mater. It could be acute, subacute, or chronic, the bleeding. Hey, and these two arteries that come up, the carotid arteries that come up, there's a circle of arteries at the base of the brain that feeds the brain with oxygenated blood. What's that called? Circle, yeah. What you talking about, Willis? Intra, cerebral, intra means what? So where is an intracerebral hematoma? And a subarachnoid hemorrhage, they're bleeding inside of that subarachnoid space. And diffuse brain injuries affect the entire brain like a concussion. Uh, blow to the head or face uh, causes basically the brain to jar around inside of the skull as a mild form of a traumatic brain injury. But now those things have more of a cumulative effect too, right? That's, that's what we're talking about with football now, right? Concussion protocols and that's why the helmet to helmet Folks get ejected from college football and 
for those things. Uh, common feature that de uh, defines a, uh, a concussion, rapid onset of short-lived impairment, uh, results in neuropathologic changes, confusion, disorientation, and retrograde amnesia. What's the difference between retrograde amnesia and antegrade amnesia? Y'all can look it up. I don't care. There you go. It was worth doing then, see? All right. Diffuse axonal injury. It's, it don't work out for these folks. Okay? A diffuse axonal injury is a more severe brain injury often associated with very poor prognosis. It, like I said, it doesn't work out for these folks. What happens if someone has a DAI, wh what type of injury is that? What happens? It's a brain injury, but how do you get a diffuse axonal injury? Rapid acceleration, deceleration. Sudden, sudden stops, right? What is a distraction? Does your book tell you about a distraction? <laughs> Cell phone, yeah, that would be a distraction, but a distraction then might cause a distraction. Basically, the cervical, the spinal cord and everything gets pulled straight up. It gets stretched. That's a distraction. That's bad, too. Uh, the spine can be injured in a variety of ways. Compression injuries from a fall, motor vehicle crashes, or other types of trauma. Uh, flexion injuries result from a forward movement of the head typically from rapid deceleration or a direct blow to the occiput or the occipital bone. Rotation with flexion, um, again looking at uh, high acceleration forces. Vertical compression, definitely going to cause a cracking of the vertebral bodies. Direct blow to the top of the head, like diving injuries and things of that nature. You might be looking at that. Rapid deceleration from a fall. Basically any type of compression or compressive forces. Oh, look at there. There's a, that's a distraction. All right, so what is, what's this picture right here showing us with the C5 and 6 and the L1? What, what, what are they talking about there? The okay, but, but paralysis, if so, somebody find in the book there where it says injury to the C5, C6, a lot of times will uh, produce quadriplegia, right? Below L1, paraplegia. 
it's not guaranteed, but they're saying those are typical deficit patterns that you'll see. Spinal cord concussion, and I was amazed to find out that you could have a concussion on your spinal cord, but that causes temporary, like a day or two, 24, 48 hours, you'll have neurological deficits. But again, once that swelling goes back down, maybe the, um, the uh, functioning will return. Spinal shock, we talked about at the beginning of the lecture, right? How will spinal shock or neurogenic shock differ than all the other shocks? Warm, dry skin, no tachycardia, and what um, goes hand in hand with spinal shock? Hypothermia, yes. All right, y'all. Uh, y'all stretch yourself again for just a minute. Here we go. Oh, man. <laughs> Going through puberty. <clears throat> what? Scene size up. Uh, it says d decide whether the trauma system should be activated. Uh, what are they talking about there? What do they mean? What, what are some things that are going to tell you? It said the trauma system should be activated. But in reality, they're just asking you about your transport destination, right? When to go to a trauma center, when not to go to a trauma center. Uh, we all should have uploaded the, the CDC field trauma triage guidelines, right? So, oh, Lord. So when are you going to go to a trauma center? Huh? Well, so what are some of them boxes, though? Falls from over 20 feet. Okay. If you have these, basically, it lists all these physiologic things with the vital signs that you could see or types of injuries or multiple injuries. But what's the last line in that CDC field trauma triage guideline that's supposed you're supposed to use to help you determine whether they go to a trauma center or not. Two words. Provider impression. If you look at them and they look hurt, you can send them to a trauma center. You can always explain why you did something, right? Explaining why you did something is pretty easy. But decide whether they want to do that because they need to be off the scene how fast? And listen to me. It makes no sense whatsoever if you're going to send them to a trauma center. You can Maybe you're going to air evac them to the trauma center via the helicopter. But you're on the scene for 45 minutes before they leave. How counterproductive is that? Platinum 10, right? The more injured they are, the sooner they need to leave to give them that best chance at survival. Things like that should be looked at. A lot of times they're overlooked, but people will sit on scene for an extended period of time and then fly them to a trauma center. Well, you're lessening their odds by sitting on that scene for 45 minutes. 
And if you got to wait for the helicopter to get there for 45 minutes, then you could probably drive to Atlanta by then from here, right? Everything's situational, but these are the things you need to consider when making those life and death decisions, okay? Look at the whole picture. Do your primary survey, obviously those are the ABCs. And when we're talking about trauma, what's, what are you most likely looking at that could be affecting the ABCs? Circulation, circulatory, the bleeding, okay? Anytime you come up on somebody that is bleeding profusely, gloved hand on that wound, why you secure airway breathing? Then when you get to C circulation, that's when you do the direct pressure and elevation if you can. Because if it's broken, you're not going to elevate it, right? If that doesn't work, you go to what? Tourniquet. Avpu. Use Avpu, making sure they're conscious, alert, and oriented times four. If not, of course, you document all those things. Clear the mouth and, caref uh, and carefully but quickly suction it if necessary. If you hear gurgling, suction, right? There's blood, vomitus, something that's in the upper airway. And again, now we're talking about injured folks here, so you, of course now without an airway, it doesn't matter if they're dead anyhow, right? But according to registry, you're technically supposed to roll them on their side, then suction, right? But if you're gonna have to roll them on their side or log roll them, you need how many people to do that? At least three. Jaw thrust maneuver. Um, again, if you put your thumbs on their zygomas and you put these finger underneath the angle of the lower jaw and you displace that lower jaw forward, then it gets that tongue out of the airway and you're not manipulating the cervical spine. And if you go to put an OPA in and they gag, obviously the OPA is contraindicated. Then you should use a nasal pharyngeal airway unless you have periorbital ecchymosis and battle signs, right? Just a little note, you know, I've asked you a million times, I've told you you've got two types of patients, right? You've got medical patients and you have trauma patients. There are much better odds to revive or to get ROSC. What's ROSC? Return of spontaneous circulation. If someone is in a medically induced cardiac arrest, you have better chances with them than you do a trauma induced. Because with trauma, something's probably actually broken. You know, and I know that's a very loose term when I say broken, because it could be not just a bone, they could be damaged organs or whatever, and CPR really can't fix that, right? So, I didn't say it's impossible, but it's less likely that someone in traumatic arrest will be revived as it is somebody who's in medical, some sort of arrest secondary to a medical problem. Prompt transport to a definitive care facility is crucial. And definitive care is what? 
what's going to fix the problem. It's usually a surgeon in the surgery, uh, operating room, yeah. Maintain the airway, oxygenation till you can get them there. That's always paramount, but it's really important for these folks. It says, uh, in supine patients, the head should be elevated 30 degrees and remember to maintain immobilization of the spine. Um, when, did, did your book tell you anything more about that? Because you're not going to lift the head up, right? You're going to have the spine immobilized and they're saying raise the head into the board 30 degrees. When would you do that? When would that be appropriate? Why? What did your book say? help reduce ICP. But again, and again, the blood pressure is going to tell you because if the blood pressure is falling because of intra-abdominal bleed, you would raise which end of the board? The feet. With a head injury, maybe 30 degrees on the head. But again, that's after immobilizing. Does that make sense? Get your history. OPQRST, get your sample history. Obtain a complete set of baseline vitals and then you should repeat those vitals how often? Five or 15 depending on their condition, right? And after any intervention. Um, Apply manual stabilization while asking the patient not to move. And that's really important because you approach the injured patient when you come up. Of course, now you got to get permission to touch them and all that good jazz first. But bam, somebody needs to hold, grab the head and hold it still while you're doing your assessment. Because you, literally, they could be sitting there talking to you. They can turn their head and go down. Done. They could sever their spinal cord. So it's very important that someone holds that manual stabilization until they're immobilized and secured to the board. So obtain a baseline GCS. What is GCS? Glasgow Coma Scale score. And what are the three things that the GCX affixes a numerical value to? Eyes. Eyes. Verbal. verbal and motor skills, yep. And of course, you're gonna check for DCAP BTLS. What are they doing in these pictures? That's that, that PMS or CMS, whatever you wanna call it. Uh, pulse, motor, and sensation. Can you squeeze my hands? Which finger am I touching? They should be able to tell you which finger <laughs> you're touching. Uh, down at the feet, can you push against my hands? Can you pull against my hands? Which toe am I touching? Do they have that dorsalis pedis pulse? Now, with an injured person, especially if there's a potential for a spinal cord injury, you do that five minutes later or so, do it again, right? Because not only are you looking for uh, weakening on one side or the other, any changes in what they did five minutes ago, well, maybe now they can't do that. So now you know what's happening that swelling's occurring, right? And it's starting to produce those neurological deficits. That's why you do that multiple times. And again, when you're doing the hands, it's both hands at the same time. You wanna feel those grip strengths too. 
Say, squeeze my hand hard as you can. Now, now get ready, because some folks got a, got a grip, okay? But squeeze my hand as hard as you can, and then five minutes later, you do it again. And if it feels like it's about to crack your knuckles the first time, but you hardly feel it the second time, you know there's a deficit developing. Does that make sense? But you definitely know it was different than the last time. All right. Continually monitoring uh, for signs of shock, and because uh, you know with shock you want to be five minutes ahead, right? You don't want to wait till the signs and symptoms develop, because what are those three stages of shock again that we talked about? Compensated. Decompensated, and what's that third one that you don't want them getting to? Irreversible. Irreversible. That's right. That's when MODS takes them out, right? Multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. Reassess again: pale, cool, clammy skin and tachycardia, hypovolemia, or shock, unless it's the spinal shock. Patient with a head injury, establish an adequate airway. That's always first and foremost on every patient. Control any bleeding that you may see. Uh, make sure there's adequate circulation and oxygenation. Don't worry about the IV stuff yet. Get your vital signs. I will talk about this for a second, even though We'll, we'll talk more about it in advance, but it says administer glucose to a head injured patient only in case of confirmed hypoglycemia. Sugar outside, now I've told you that blood outside of the vessels is very caustic to the body, right? Sugar uh, necrotes or causes necrosis to tissue. Now, what did I say in English? causes it to rot okay so if they're bleeding in the head and you push sugar what's that doing to the brain tissue it's causing it to rot it's causing necrosis in the brain uh, so only push it in confirmed hypoglycemia because if they run out of sugar if the sugar is completely depleted that's going to kill them but only take that chance if it's absolutely necessary Scalp lacerations, again, if you, if you apply direct pressure to a scalp laceration, what do you want to make absolutely sure that the patient doesn't have before you exert any pressure? A skull fracture, right? If a depressed skull fracture, anything like that, and if you go to putting pressure, you're pushing the bone, the loose bone into the brain. Again, immobilization of the cervical spine. Um, and, and in the video, they said, I'm going to put a properly sized seat collar on my patients. Y'all remember hearing that? How do you properly size a seat collar? And what should you check, even though that station doesn't verbalize it, what should you check before you put the collar on anybody? Go back, think about patient assessment trauma, what we did. Make sure the trachea is midline, no JVD and you're going to palpate the cervical spine for step-offs or deformities, right? Then you're going to put the collar on. 
But how do you properly size a seed collar? How do you know you got the right size? It is something with your hand. It's the number of fingers that fit between their collarbone and their lower jaw. Now, depending on what manufacturer's devices you get, you can actually slide the collar to a different size, or you may have small, medium, large sizes, and you do your best there. Um, it just depends on what type of collars you have. So you have to know your equipment. Uh, stabilize the head and the trunk so that potentially fractured bone fragments do not cause further damage. Do not move the head any farther in the case of muscle spasms in the neck, increased pain with movement, numbness, tingling in the arms and legs, or compromised airway. If you get to the sink and their head is turned some kind of way or whatever, now you're going to have to return that head to that neutral inline position to put, you can't put a collar on them with a head like that. You just can't. But now if you go to gently move that head and you feel resistance, what should you do? Stop. Call medical control, get their advice, but odds are you're gonna have to kind of take them like they are or do your best, okay? Um, if they're face down, can you assess and maintain an airway? No. no. So, and we'll talk about that because when you go test advanced practical skills, they're not supposed to, but some, some uh, testing locations will give you a patient that's face down. They're not supposed to do that, but it happens. Um, I think I told you all that before, but uh, the guy that was here earlier, he just failed his patient assessment trauma. Guess how they had his patient? Face down. So. Dirty rotten trick. Cervical collars provide that preliminary partial support, but they're not completely supported till they're secured to the board. Just because they put a collar on doesn't mean your partner can let go of the head. You have to maintain that manual stabilization even after the collar's on. You can't relinquish that head and neck until they are secured to the board. And when, at what point do you secure the head to the board? After the torso. And again, that long spine board is just a large splint. And what do you assess before and after you put any splint on the human? The pulse motor and sensation in all four extremities. Again, uh, there's different types of boards, but the concept's basically the same. There's different types of straps and strapping systems. You just have to be familiar with what, what you have. What we have here is we're going to have two straps across the torso, and we're going to have a strap across the, uh, the hips and the legs. Uh, so three straps, and then the head will be secured. Not with a strap, though. What is that? Vest style extrication device, or uh, KED. That's a little product identification there because that's a specific name brand. KED stands for the Kendrick Extrication Device. And listen to me. If, well, I would never do it, but if I were a lawyer, I know where I'd make my living. Because 
the Kendrick extrication device, if someone is in the seated position, but their spine's potentially injured, every car wreck ever, right? If they are basically stable, you're supposed to use one of these to get them out of the car. You're only supposed to, what you're gonna see in the real world is you'll see a stretcher with a backboard on it rolled up to the car door, right? And we'll jam the board underneath the patient's bottom, okay? And somebody's in the back seat holding their head, then we'll lift the legs up and rotate them and lay them down on the seat and we slide them on the board. That's an emergency procedure there. You're only supposed to do that in cases that the patient's not stable or if the automobile's on fire or something like that. That's an emergency move. If they're stable and in the seated position, you're supposed to use this device to get them out of the car or to remove them from wherever they're at. Now you wanna talk about pressure. When I took EMT, you know, we used to go as a class to do all of our uh, uh, psychomotor skills testing. And we would, the first half of the day would be the paper written test, because it was actually on paper back then. And then you'd do your psychomotor skills after the, the, the paper test. Well, there was a rumor that the KD used to be a, a testing station. And they said, yeah, you come in, if you get the guy in the wheelchair, He's in that wheelchair because an EMT got him out of a car incorrectly and paralyzed his legs. Now I'm like, ah, kid don't scare that easy. I ain't worried about that. I think it's all made up until I'm sitting in that station and here comes old buddy in his wheelchair. And he shared the story with you before he ever tested you on this. So yeah, so that used to be pressure. So anyhow, that's when that's supposed to be used and um, just remember, my baby looks too hot. And you know how to put that on. And we'll cover that later. My baby looks too hot. Supine patients, four-person log roll, ideal procedure to move a patient from the ground to backboard. Again, a minimum of three. If you have more people than three, obviously that's better. But uh, you want to always move. And one thing I didn't like in that video is they kind of kind of slid the patient up a little bit, but then they slid her sideways. No. Listen to me. Everybody in the room write this down. Whenever you're mobilizing someone with a potential uh, spinal injury, you always move the patient along the long axis of the spine. That means it's up or down along the long axis of the spine, right? Never any lateral movements to put them on the board or anything. No lateral movements. It's always along the long axis of the spine. Again, with the, the uh, seated patients, use a short backboard, which the, that's old terminology. We used to have literally short backboards that we would slide behind people and strap them to that if they were in a car. Really been replaced by the Vestyle spinal extrication device, or as uh, uh, Cesar told us, the KED. But other companies make a Vestyle extrication device as well. Only use these spinal immobilization devices in patients who are stable and do not require rapid extrication. Rapid extrication is indicated only in cases of life or limb-threatening injury. 
And that did I explain to you that you're going to see every fire department in the world do as a rapid extrication technique. If they're stable, Vestile extrication device is supposed to be used every time, but it never is. And I'm telling you, old Dewey Screwem and Howe's eventually going to figure that one out. That's that law firm, Dewey Screwem and Howe. Patients wearing a helmet. Is that an airway concern sometimes? Especially those full face ones, right? Is the patient's airway clear? Is the patient breathing adequately? Can you maintain the airway and assist ventilations if the helmet remains in place? Football helmets, you can remove the, have the trainer remove the face, face mask, possibly. So, if someone's injured on a motorcycle or a football player, whatever, they're wearing a helmet, do you leave the helmet on or do you take the helmet off? What helps you decide? As long as you get the airway, leave it on. As long as you, as long as it's properly fitted, right? If it's wobbling around on the head, take it off. If you can assess and maintain an airway and you can properly immobilize, leave it on. If not, you take it off and we'll, uh, we'll go over the proper way to do that next class as well in the floor, okay? It's not that complicated, but we'll go over it. A helmet that fits well prevents the patient's head from moving and should be left on. Again, as long as you can assess and maintain that airway. And look at here. Here's pictures of how you do it. That's a football helmet again, ain't it? Same concept, and we'll, we'll get in the floor and do that. Small children may require additional padding. Again, if someone is a, especially small children like that, best way in the world to mobilize them in that supine position and maintain an airway, put a folded towel behind their shoulder blades. Because their occipital bone protrudes further than an adult's does. So if you lay them flat and that bone's sticking out further on the back of the head, that does that to the head, right? Which may cause that airway to crimp off. So to get in that neutral position, Fold a towel and put it behind their shoulder blades. Non-traumatic spinal conditions. Um, upright posture places substantial amount of weight on the lumbar spine. Spinal tumors can cause pain, obviously. And a lot of back pain is idiopathic, right? What does that mean? They don't know why. They don't know why. Degenerative disc disease is quite common. That's another non-traumatic spinal condition. Disc herniation. Bam. 